This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You guys, I was thinking about this. If I had to tease out one single common thread linking all our gutsy guests together, it's a fascinating form, I would say, of fearlessness. Because fear is exactly the reason a lot of people don't succeed. Example, if you had a great idea in the middle of a recession, would you think to yourself, hey, let me max out my credit cards and turn this into a business? You know, the average person would say, no way, I'm totally scared. I'll lose my current job. I'm scared it'll fail. I'm afraid this is the worst time to take a chance. But average, you don't want to be average, right? Neither did my guest today, who during high school dove into his passion to be a tech mastermind of sorts, and in doing so became, at age 15, the youngest engineer ever to be hired at software giant Oracle. 15 years old. You know, he could have ended it there, right? Making a fine living at a tech blue chip for the rest of his life, climbing the ladder, doing well for the rest of time. I mean, why take the chance and reach higher when life is good enough? But even at a young age, he had one mission, and that was to move himself and the world forward. Here with me today is the co-founder and CEO of a company called Samsara, Sanjit Biswa. Sanjit Thank you for coming on Everyone Talks to Liz. I was so psyched to hear your story. Thanks, Liz. It's great to be on. 15? Are you kidding me? I mean, how did you get on Oracle's radar at 15 years old? <laughs> you know, it's funny. That feels like ancient history. I think that was about 25 years ago. But <laughs> uh, I, I think, you know, we probably had uh, some family friends who were working at Oracle. I'd heard of the company and I, I basically submitted a resume, not really thinking that a partial high school education may not have been enough, but they saw that I'd been <laughs> writing code and I think they got excited. <laughs> I wonder if that would happen today. You know, I think there are a lot more techie kids out there these days. Back then, it was still kind of a rare, very nerdy art form. Uh, so I think I stood out a little bit. I think now would be a lot harder. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. But, you know, that's the thing. Who knows at what point in time we all exist? And that's why you have to strike, even if you don't think the iron's hot, right? That's right. You know, and I think... Um, at that point, there was just this sort of blind desire or passion to go and, and learn more and learn from everyone I could. So I didn't even think twice about it, to be honest. How did you scale that? I mean, your your parents were okay with this? I know they were both professors, correct? That's right. Yeah. My, my family is a bunch of academics. Uh, my dad had moved into industry by that point. And so he knew that there was a lot of exciting engineering work going on in the software industry, um, but I think they were okay with it because they saw that I was engaged, I was learning a ton, and I think they just wanted to kind of feed my brain. Okay, that is fascinating to me, as is your earlier life, but I did just want, because I think it's important for our listeners to know this, because they're saying, Liz, what is Samsara? It's not a household name, your company, but there's a good chance many of our listeners have unknowingly been the beneficiaries of what the company does in the Internet of Things world, right? IoT? 
That's right. So our technology helps the companies in the world of physical operations. So if you think about the supply chains or the energy utilities, the construction companies that really power this planet, we're basically helping them become safer, more efficient, more sustainable using data from IoT sensors and all kinds of other inputs like mobile apps and web apps and so on. So what we're really doing is becoming the technology partner behind the scenes that helps these companies. And these companies, by the way, make up about 40% of the world GDP. So you're exactly right. Many of your listeners probably have benefited from the customers that we help support. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, just to sort of clarify, you make GPS and temperature monitoring, dash cams that provide visibility into driver behavior, which then it would make sense, offer insights to help decrease the frequency of preventable accidents by by pretty significant amount. But let, let's talk about what you just said, you know, behind the scenes. You're, you're kind of the man behind the curtain and I guess I guess you probably look at it that way, too. You grew up in Texas, but your parents had come to Canada from another country. Can you just give us the map there? Yeah, absolutely. So my parents are originally from India. They uh, immigrated to Canada, where uh, my dad was finishing a postdoc at the University of Alberta. He then went on to become a professor at SMU, Southern Methodist University down in Dallas, Texas. Mm. So that's really where I grew up. Um, so we moved there when I was about two. I uh, went to school there until uh, we moved to California, which is right around the time of high school. Texas. What was that like? You know, I think it was pretty good. Uh, in retrospect, it was pretty hot. And, uh, you know, <laughs> that's kind of Texas's reputation. But yeah. I had a great, uh, great childhood. I think I, I was fortunate. I went to a great public school down there, made a lot of friends. And uh, it was a great place to grow up. Texas is very different, though, from California. I find it so fascinating nowadays People are leaving California and going to Austin and to Houston. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's really been interesting. When we moved to California in the mid-1990s, uh, Silicon Valley was the place to be in technology, right? You know, all the tech giants, Apple, Cisco, and, and all these big companies are out here. Now you can join a tech company basically anywhere in the U.S. and really anywhere in the world. So I think opportunity is spread out a lot more than it had you know, 30, 40 years ago. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember gateway computers. They were up in, in the Northwest, way up there in, I, God, Idaho? I can't, I can't even remember. But I, <laughs> I, I do just, remember those cows. Yeah, the that, cow that box. Left yeah, exactly. Exactly. The computers with the cow box name. All right. So, you know, we already mentioned that your parents were both professors. And I know I'm jumping around, but I find in a way that you had done that, too, in your life. I want to go back to your high school. You're all in mm -hmm. on technology, right? I mean, you created a web team at your school. <laughs> what year was this and what did that web team do? Yeah, you know, um, I think this was 1994, 1995. Uh, and for all of your listeners who remember, that's kind of before the Internet had become mainstream. I remember I had sort of read about it, somehow figured out how to get online. And this is when I was in probably ninth grade. And just thought it was it was amazing. You had access to all this information. You could send emails. You could chat with people. It was really just this kind of mind blowing new technology. And uh, I thought it'd be a great idea to basically start a club in my high school. We called it very creatively the Web Team, um, and get a bunch of us together to try to figure out a way to get all the other students in our high school online. So we had about sixteen hundred kids in our high school. Okay. And um, we thought, you know, how can we get them online? And so we we created email addresses for them all. We made it easy for them to make web pages. And now that I think back on it, it was a little bit out there because it's not like the World Wide Web had become mainstream. The web browser had just been invented that year. And uh, it's actually funny now how life has worked out. 
I remember downloading those, the first web browser, which was called Mosaic. It was written by a student at the University of Illinois named Mark Andreessen, who's now on my board. Oh, uh, my so God. It's really funny to see all that kind of come full circle. That is amazing. I mean, Andreessen is huge in Silicon Valley, big investor, big venture capitalist now. Talk to me about that moment, though, because making web pages to me sounds a little Facebooky. I mean, you were Facebook before <laughs> Facebook was Facebook, it seems like. Or do I have that completely way off? You know, I'd never really made that connection. This is over a decade before Facebook. So this is really at the very beginning of the Internet and when people still had never really seen a web page and a web browser. So I think in that sense, it was just a way to get people online. Um, but you're right now, it's kind of synonymous with Facebook and social networking and social media. But back then it was simply, you know, can you get people onto the Internet? I'm thinking about that dial up sound. Back in the day, mm -hmm. CompuServe, Pascal. I went to Berkeley in uh, yeah the late 80s, and I just remember that Pascal, <laughs> people were yeah. learning that, but they had to take turns on the, the three computers that the computer science lab actually had. So, you know, you were very, very early in all of this, and then you just found your passion. So you ended up at Stanford. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was uh, late 90s, early 2000s. What was your major? Well, this is going to sound very out there, but it was computer science and electrical engineering. So basically <laughs> building blocks of, of computers. <laughs> Did you imagine that you were going to be a founder of a company? Tell me what your mindset was. Well, you know, that was actually during the dot-com boom. So there were companies being founded left and right, you know, just around the Stanford campus. So Palo Alto was very much kind of an epicenter of that tech wave. However, as you probably remember, that wave kind of busted in 2001, which is the year before I graduated. So that was a kind of time of reckoning for a lot of people mm -hmm. where everyone that was graduating with me was figuring out, well, am I going to be able to find a job? Where am I going to work? And for me, I'd actually found a passion um, as an undergraduate student doing research and probably not surprising given my parents' background and my extended family, a bunch of academic researchers. So I'd kind of gotten into that and I thought, you know what, this is actually a, a great opportunity to go into grad school. It's not like there are any jobs out there anyway. And so uh, let me take a couple of years and do a PhD program. So that's how I ended up applying to grad school in the sort of wake of the dot-com bust. And I started grad school in 2002, which is the year after. Right. And that was at MIT, correct? That's right. So I moved to the uh, East Coast there. Well, when you when you look at that experience, because MIT, I lived in Boston, and we used to cover the kids at Harvard and the kids at, at Northeastern, and, and of course, MIT. And I always used to say, oh, my God, those kids at MIT are the smartest. Really unbelievable uh, brains there. What was the number one thing that you learned there among your peers, among all these people who were very, very intelligent, obviously, that really helps you to this day? Well, I learned a ton in grad school at MIT, and it is a great institution. It's um, this amazing melting pot of so many bright minds and professors and mm -hmm. researchers and so on. For me, the biggest takeaway was actually the importance of the problem you're solving. So not just the solution and the clever engineering and math and science that goes into it, but working on the right problem is just as important, if not more important. And that was something that I ended up learning in my very first year there. Um, I, I remember I kind of hit the ground. I was excited to write papers and just dive headfirst into research. And uh, our academic advisor, PhD advisor said, you know, the papers will come. Let's go find something 
interesting to work on. And so that's how we ended up getting into uh, the research that became our first startup company, which was a research project called MIT RoofNet. We wanted to take new technology at the time, which was Wi-Fi, and make really big Wi-Fi networks that could connect hundreds of thousands of people. That was a challenging and interesting problem. There's a lot of technical uh, know-how that needs to go into making big networks. But it wasn't something that was going to produce a paper that year. And that was okay. And so I, I really loved that MIT sort of taught us that. And that was very much part of the culture, which was just work on big, hard problems. And the rest will sort of work itself out. It does if you just keep going. This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we will be right back. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. I want to talk about the first company you founded, Meraki, because you started it just before the 2008 recession. So things are good. Things are flush, I would imagine. We're all recovering from the dot-com implosion and that bubble bursting. And this is a company that you ended up being sold to Cisco for a billion dollars. But I need to hear what it was like in the early days, because that sounds great, but I'm sure there were some difficult times. Well, there certainly were a lot of challenges, uh, the first of which was actually starting the company, because uh, like we just talked about, we were grad students and researchers. Mm -hmm. We didn't know the first thing about starting a business and raising financing. And we were out in Boston, which was not Silicon Valley. So it's not like there were angel investors everywhere. So the first and kind of biggest challenge that Samsara faced, or sorry, Meraki faced was getting off the ground. Um, so we actually ended up bootstrapping the company. In other words, we sold product and generated revenue in a way that we could reinvest it back in the business. Sounds really straightforward, but when you're building hardware technology and cloud services and doing this all you know, about 15 years ago, that was a pretty big undertaking. So that was challenge number one. And then like you just said, uh, running the company and growing it through the aftermath of the 2008 recession, that was also challenging, but really sort of a crucible or formative moment for us because we learned the importance of solving real world business problems, connecting with our customers or running a feedback loop. And that's what made those products so successful. And they continue to grow today. There's now, I think, 4 million plus Meraki networks in the world, which means 
there have been billions of dollars of Meraki products sold, which is really mind-blowing to think about. Okay, so again, I need to go back to the early stages. You said you didn't know anything about raising money or starting a business. Where did you buy an office? Did you rent? Um, where were you manufacturing? How did you get your first customer? Were you cold calling? Let us know. Yeah, well, uh, we certainly didn't buy our first office. We didn't have any money, so there <laughs> wasn't a lot of buying of anything. Uh, the, the way we kind of got off the ground was it, it was very much sort of a where there's a will, there's a way kind of thing. We had this idea that we want to take the technology we developed in grad school, basically put it in a box so other people could build networks and provide free Wi-Fi and you know connect their schools and their main streets and, and so on. So that was the vision and, and the dream. To make it happen, we needed to actually make some routers, so hardware devices that would provide the Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to hire some software engineers. Um, we basically had a lot of friends from grad school who were excited to work on this as a commercial project. So that part we had covered. But then we needed to finance it all. And so uh, in that sense, the biggest challenge that we had to go through at the very beginning was simply finding, I think it was about fifty dollars or $100,000 to make that first order for the hardware. Mm -hmm. And then... Um, well, how'd At you find point, it? Hold on, hold on. How'd you <laughs> yeah. find it? Well, we we tried everything. So we had no money. We were we were grad students living off very tiny stipends. So that wasn't really an option. And none of us um, had, you know, parents that had extra money for for kind of projects like that. So we ended up first trying the banks, and I remember going into what was called Fleet Bank at the time. You may remember that. Liz, I do. I do. Sure. Um, I remember going to Fleet Bank and asking, is it possible for us to get a loan or is there anything that we can kind of figure out? And they looked at me and they said, look, you know, I was probably 24 at the time. They said, look, you guys are in your mid 20s. Now, if you were starting a pizza joint, like if you needed to buy a pizza oven, we could finance that. But routers, we don't know. We, we can't do that. So that wasn't an option. Oh. Um, and we ended up actually finding our, our first two customers. There was a nonprofit. Uh, called One Laptop Per Child, and they wanted to put Wi-Fi out in some of these villages and remote parts of the world. And then Google, of all places, had announced that they want to do free Wi-Fi in the city of San Francisco. Um, so I ended up uh, pitching them inadvertently. I did an academic pr presentation to them about our research. And at the end, I showed them one slide that said, you know, this is a project we're, we're working on. We'd love to kind of get it started, but we're trying to figure out how to get our first order of routers out the door. And um, Google actually placed an order for a couple of thousand units. And so that was basically our first purchase order. Or PO. Oh, my. Were you guys high fiving each other and so psyched when you got that first order? <laughs> we were we were definitely excited. And, you know, it was funny because um, actually somebody from the audience came up and said, hey, I want to give you a PO for for 3000 units. And I said, that's great. What's a PO? <laughs> so, <laughs> it was only at the point that we figured out that was purchase order. They were like. Amazing. This is going to be awesome. You're like, yeah, I know. I, I know what a PO is. Yeah. <laughs> Meantime, you're desperately well, then looking we had to figure it. out how do you cash one of these things? So then we <laughs> learned about you know the whole back office side of things, too. And once you sold it, you made it through the uh, you made it through the recession and you sell it to Google. You can't get it out of your system. Right. That entrepreneurial spirit. And that's where Samsara came about. I know that. The Financial Times last year named Samsara the second fastest growing tech company in America out of 500. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of fun to see those metrics. But when you're in the middle of it, you're not thinking about that. You're just trying to think about the next quarter and the next year. And let's talk about some really uh, less than exciting moments, I'm sure, aren't too much fun. Or maybe they are to go back and look upon, like times where maybe you felt you weren't going to be able to make payroll. It's not easy, is it? This road to really creating something. No, it's, it's really not. And I think, you know, we've had more of these moments than <laughs> I think any of us would like. I remember back in 2008 and 2009, uh, the world was kind of falling apart, right? The banks were failing and uh, unemployment ended up spiking well over 10%. It was a time that was pretty tough if you're a startup company, which was which we were at Meraki. We were only doing a few million dollars in revenue. And you're trying to figure out how to maintain a really high growth rate when you know that it's a really tough time out there in the economy. So that was kind of first tough moment. And then we had another one recently in 2020, the beginning of the pandemic. That was mm -hmm. chaos and we had to lead through it. And, you know, there are just these moments where you have to figure out what's important. Uh, how do you think clearly and how do you stay focused on customers, on developing the business and kind of the, the fundamentals, the things that matter? What is the most important thing not to do in times like that? Well, I think there's a lot coming at you, right? You've got um, a lot of different stakeholders to think about, whether it's customers or employees or investors. Mm. And so kind of staying calm and figuring out, okay, what is going to get us out of this in a productive way that we can work hard and deliver value? And if we if we do our jobs and we kind of stay focused on those things, the rest will work itself out. I think that is the hardest thing because there are all these news headlines that are doom and gloom. Uh, there's a lot of panic out there. But if you're doing something that's fundamentally useful and has value, you can build a model around it that is sustainable. And that's always been the key thing that I stay focused on is where is our core value and how do we double down on that? As you grow this company and maybe a few others in your future, you know, when people really make it and they are billionaires now, I mean, you're hugely successful. Don't you often think about what you can do that's more important than you know, the current selling your your wares and making sure you have more customers and growing a business and maybe taking it public one day. You know, I think about Silicon Valley and the one thing that I notice, and believe me, I'm all about meritocracy. I'm about who can get the job done. But one thing that I continue to hear from people in the Valley is that women are not given the same shot as men. Is there anything that you look at to try and change something like that? Absolutely. So one of our core values as a company is to be inclusive. And that means inclusive women, minorities, veterans, all different kinds of folks that come from different walks of life. And I think if you have experienced uh, the kind of deck being stacked against you, you know what that's like. And for me, you know, I was um, children of immigrants. My name didn't sound like everyone else's. It, it wasn't a, a John or a Bill or something like that. I didn't come from a business background. And so in some ways, the odds felt stacked against me. Now, yeah. don't get me wrong. I had a ton of advantages in terms of a great education and great parents and all that kind of stuff. But for me, it was actually a, a, a sort of moment uh, as I was growing up where you realize, you know, it's not always going to be easy. And so then when you get a chance to build an organization, define some of those values, figure out what you're going to consider important, you have an opportunity to 
try to stack the deck again in in a more even way, right? And so that's what being inclusive means for us is mm-hmm. kind of opening that funnel up or opening that mindset up. But then to your point earlier about meritocracy, you do want to make sure you build a great high performance team. So for us, that means making sure we have a very diverse top of funnel when we recruit for different positions and then kind of letting the process run and making sure that there are no pinch points where you know, statistically, things aren't making sense uh, if that if that kind of works out for you. Yeah, yeah, because I do feel that one of the things that I continue to hear is this drumbeat of questioning. I wouldn't say complaints, but questioning as to why venture capitalists tend to just toss money at men versus women. And so, therefore, I I often think about that. And I think it's an important issue to bring up. Regardless, as we finish up, Sanjeet, what is it, if you were to tell kids today who are in high school, just like you were, and starting up your little web team, what would you tell all high school kids, whether they're interested in technology or not? Well, um, I would probably tell them stay focused on impact. And so whether that's the web team and you're just trying to get people online and get them email addresses or the RoofNet project and we, we were trying to get people Wi-Fi access or now Samsara where we're trying to go and change the world of physical operations by helping give them data about how uh, things are going out in the field on safety and efficiency and sustainability. All of those projects for me have been about impact. And if you can stay focused on that, you can create some value in the world. And if you create value in the world, the business and the startup and all that kind of the kind of details work themselves out. So if you figure out that North Star, it really helps because there will be all kinds of things thrown at you. And, you know, these projects tend to take decades. They're, you know, they're not short term sprints. They're really long term marathons. And so you want to make sure you're headed in the right direction and you know how to reorient yourself when you do get knocked off course a little bit. Yeah. Because everybody does. It's almost like you can't really become a huge success without getting knocked off course and then finding your way again. Sanjeet, what a great story. Thank you so much. Thank you, Liz. We'll continue to watch all of the developments, certainly over at Samsara. And thank you guys, as always, for tuning in, because I think these stories are changing your lives and your world so that you hear it's not easy. The climb is really rife with all kinds of boulders and cliffs and edges. It's okay. So you fall off. You're holding on by your fingernails. All successful people do. Once again, I love you guys for tuning in. Everyone talks to Liz. And by the way, I talk to you guys Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern on Fox Biz for the Claim and Countdown. I'll see you then. Want to listen ad-free? You can do it with a Fox News Podcasts Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And then Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.